Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is Supply Creates Its Own Demand. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcast, we are building an audio reference library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy from a limited government free market standpoint, or who need to get up to speed on a particular issue. So today we're going to talk about a fundamental concept in economic policy, Say's Law, or how supply creates its own demand. And I'm joined today in the studio by not only our resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, but also our senior research fellow, Bartlett Clellan. Um, Thank you, Bartlett and Buddy, for being with us today. We have a full studio today. And we're going to talk about really one of my favorite topics and a really important fundamental concept, and that is this idea of Say's Law. Now, when we say Say's Law, we're talking about a person, Jean-Baptiste Say, S-A-Y. He was a French economist, and in 1803, he published a book called A Treatise on Political Economy. And Say's purpose in writing this book was to do some of the same stuff that Adam Smith did, which is push back on mercantilism which was sort of the dominant view of the day. And uh, to put it very, very simply, mercantilists thought that money was the source of wealth. And they thought that they should be pursuing policies that essentially resulted in being able to hoard money for the national treasury. And so that tended to make them opposed to trade. It tended to make them opposed to free trade. And, uh, you know, we still run into some of this thinking today, even, even when our past president, Donald Trump, would talk about other countries robbing us blind because they were trading with us and because we had trade deficits. That's a reflection of this sort of old, outdated, and wrong view of mercantilism. And so it was a really important contribution for not only Adam Smith, but also Jean-Baptiste Say to come along and say, no, that's actually not how it works. And so Say's book and Say's principle is the idea that production comes first, that production is the source of demand, that you have to produce something before you consume. And you know, if you think about it, this is obvious, right? I mean, where do you get the money to go out and spend on things just as a consumer or as, as a household? Where do you get the money? Well, you have to work first, right? You have to earn it. You have to produce. You have to sell something, even if it's just selling your own labor. If you're a business, you have to sell product before you get money to go out and invest or buy new product. You have to sell something first. You have to produce. So Say's point here was that encouraging production was the most important thing that could be done from a governmental standpoint or from a policy standpoint, that encouraging consumption is actually kind of a, like a ass backward way to look at it, that production has to come first. And that if you have abundant production, that production creates demand for whatever it is that it's producing. And there were a couple of quotes by Say that really sort of explain this. One quote is this. He said, a product is no sooner created than it from that instant affords a market for other products to the full extent of its own value. And so what he meant there was when you create a product and someone buys it, uh, that money can go to a different product. It doesn't necessarily have to go back to the very same thing that was produced. 
So the value to the producer is not just the value from production is not just to the producer, but it's, it's to everybody. It's to the whole economy. And then he also said, as each of us can only purchase the productions of others with his own production, as the value we can buy is equal to the value we can produce, the more men can produce, the more they will purchase. So the idea here, when we talk about supply and demand, and when we talk about, you know, supply and demand being roughly balanced in an economy, that's true. But Say's point is that it all starts with production. You have to produce first before you can consume. And so when you're looking, if you're looking to jumpstart an economy, if you're looking to jumpstart the business cycle or the economic cycle, where you start is with production, not with consumption. So Tom, let's weigh in on the the group that is the biggest enemy of Say's law, and that's the Keynesians. Yes, that's exactly so right. John Maynard Keynes from about from about 1940ish to about oh 1980 or so, Keynes thinking and economics sort of dominated major economies. Um, starting in it, it, and starting in the late 70s, and then really taking off in the 80s when Ronald Reagan came in, that sort of flipped, and there was a sense in which we thought. Keynesianism had really kind of gone away a little bit because economics or the policies of Ronald Reagan sort of sort of helped prove the Say's approach. Mm-hmm. And but coming in the 2000s and then really with Barack Obama in here, we saw the Keynesian models sort of coming back. And now you have the division again where the Keynesian economists will say, yeah, there's a few there's a few sort of old timey economists out there influenced by the Austrian school, but really mainstream economists don't accept that whole says law thing. And the says law people, the Austrian economists, free market economists will say, it's clear that says law is adamantly true. I mean, it absolutely Mm. is true. And these Keynesians are way off base because they just don't understand that this has to be true. Yeah. I think we would, we would say that people who essentially buy into says law and Adam Smith, right? is what you would call classical economics. And that was pretty much dominant until, as you say, like the post-war era, right? Until like the 50s and 60s and 70s. And, you know, if you think back about what how that all ended, I mean, that all resulted in the stagflation of the 70s, extremely high interest rates, mm-hmm. very poor performing economy, the U.S. declining in global competitiveness. You know, for, for folks like us who reject Keynesianism, it seems like, you know, Hey, we tried that, you know, been there, done that. And it didn't really work. And then, uh, in the eighties, the Reagan approach comes in where they say, they sort of want to return to classical economics. And so what do you do? You cut taxes in order to have an abundance of capital to try to create its own demand. So Keynes, the idea of Keynesianism is if you want to grow the economy, what you want to do is stimulate demand through government spending, uh, deficit spending, government borrowing. So Keynesianism starts on the demand side and says, if we create enough demand, production will follow. Whereas Say's law says, no, it says you start with production. And if you create enough production, demand will follow that. And, and let's just address one of the, because the Keynesians tend to sort of dismiss the notion of supply creates its own demand by saying, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say Merrill Matthews creates Merrill Matthews' greatest hits of the top 40. Right. And I get that produced. I may not find anybody who demands that. Thing. Right. Uh, there may be no demand for it. But the, the broader context is 
if for for somebody to be able to buy, they have to create wealth themselves right. to be able to exchange that wealth for some other wealth out there. So mm-hmm. even though Keynesians focus on money and banking, you can do the, the the supply creates its own demand. That sort of sense is true even in a barter economy. If Farmer Jones uh, creates some extra corn and he would like to trade that for some wheat, he's got to go find Farmer uh, Smith, who has some, who's created some extra wheat, and then they can make an exchange. Mm-hmm. That is, you've got to have that product yep. to be able to exchange that. But it, and you're exchanging wealth, and it's what what um, what says law would say is it's it it always has to balance because what I trade for something for something else, I feel like we're both getting a, a, the value that we're trading for. So mm-hmm. you create a balance in the economy and doing that. Yeah, but I want to go back and talk about Merrill Matthews' greatest hit. Mm-hmm. I don't think we could let that go quite that easy. <laughs> it, it argues for a one-word change. I think it's quality. Yes. Supply <laughs> creates its own demand. That's, that's, right, that's right. So <laughs> if I change it to, if, if Merrill Matthews sings Lady Gaga's greatest hits, will that be better? Well, you know what? Even, even under the ridiculous scenario of Merrill Matthews greatest hits you still had to produce something before you could go in and rent the studio time right mm-hmm. I mean you, seriously I mean you had to produce but your point is in exactly order to consume right. studio time right. you know? because there has to be wealth I have to exchange wealth in order to be able to get the production and so forth or buy the equipment myself if I'm doing it myself yep so the, it's it's the broader aspect of the economy that you're talking about it's not the individual thing that somebody because people produce things all the time that nobody wants to buy right but the system does not encouraging them to continue to do so right mm-hmm. this the system basically educates them that you made a mistake and you know bartlett one of my favorite examples of this idea of um supply creates its own demand is in the area of technology i mean i remember when apple came out with the ipod and I, I've talked about this before, but I thought that was ridiculous. I thought, who in the world needs to carry around in their pocket at all time 22,000 songs and 5,000 photographs, right? I thought it was ridiculous. No one needed an iPod. You know, there wasn't demand for an iPod. There was not some yawning market demand for an iPod. Production came first. Supply came first. Somebody invented this thing, and everybody wanted it. And you can think of a lot of products of technology the exact same way. You didn't know you needed it. Someone invented it. Someone produced it. Production came first. And now it's considered a necessity. I, I thought that when they put that camera in the in the iPhones sure. and the other smartphones, I thought, what in the world do you want a camera for in your phone? Right. But if you, and now that's one of the key aspects of the phone. If you think about any innovative products, right? It's the innovation and the production that came first, not the demand. The demand followed. That's right. Um, Dr. Matthews, to your point, just, and this is a good example because there are tons of not successful innovations, Mm -hmm. right? So it doesn't mean that every supply is guaranteed to create a demand. It's not a guarantee. It's it's closer. Well, it is exactly what you're saying, which is that is the necessary uh, beginning before you get the demand it doesn't necessarily mean there will be a demand right but uh yeah you're right and actually i think about the uh flashlight on mm-hmm. my on my quote phone mm-hmm. or whatever we call these yeah, things yeah. Now, uh that i who knew i needed the flashlight in my pocket so often but boy i get irritated if my phone's out of my pocket i'm under the sink and i'm looking I for use something mine all the time uh, or or in the car or right. wherever it is i i no longer go look around my house for a flashlight i expect it to be somewhere near That's me right. at all times but that it it 
to me in technology, uh, this whole point to your, to your point, Tom, uh, is on steroids because not only do we end up with a demand for a product, we end up a demand for a whole industry or a whole stack of products mm-hmm. as one product builds on the next. And of course, in each of those, we have the same law, says law working, uh, there, but we wouldn't without that beginning stack, begin the first part of the stack, arguably people all, um, by the time certainly technology evolves, we're used to communicating across the country. And so it's not crazy that we end up with internet service providers per se, people mm-hmm. providing this beginning platform, but we are so far down the road. Social media, I think is a great example. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone thought we needed a picture of all of our friends in a way to communicate with them or about what, the, their, what they happen to have for breakfast. That's right. Today. <laughs> about their, that's what I was going to say about their dining schedule right. um, daily. But it turns out that not only did we need that apparently or desire that, we now are building all kinds of products on top of, yeah. in this case, Facebook or Twitter, et cetera. We may not have needed it, <clears throat> you know, but from, from again, to, from a technical economic standpoint, what we would say is there was clearly demand for it, right? There was the, absolutely the, the, demand. The fact that it existed and was created and, and was made, was supplied to consumers created demand. And now I don't know how many subscribers there are on Facebook or how many subscribers. Yeah. And, and Twitter and things like that. Uh, you can argue whether or not those are good or bad things for society. But you can't argue whether or not there's demand. That's right. Absolutely. Because there's definitely demand. And, you know, when we were talking about, like, this is so obvious, I think these illustrations are great for illustrating the point, these these products of innovation. But, you know, we talk about technology and we think about iPods and the Internet and social media and stuff. But at some point, the car was technology, right? At some point, the automobile was technology. And no one needed a car. You know, I mean, all of these things, it's not like the demand came first, right? The production and the supply came first and then consumers embraced it. So obviously it isn't the demand that created the supply. It was the supply that created the demand. That's right. In fact, famously with the automobile. Yeah, exactly. So there are some, I think there are some economic implications of Say's law of the idea that production comes first before consumption. And then I think there are some policy implications. Um, so the economic implications are the great, one of them is the greater the number of producers, the more prosperous an economy will be Mm -hmm. because production creates demand. And so, you know, we'd like to say here at the Institute for policy innovation, that economic growth solves a multitude of problems and covers a multitude of sins. And if you want a growing economy, what you want to do is you want to emphasize production. You want a prosperous society. So the greater the number of producers, the more prosperous that society will be. And another implication is the first quote that I read from, from say, which is that the success of one industry benefits other industries because the productive industry creates capacity to buy things from the other industry. So, you know, it's not right to look at like, say for instance, the technology economy in a silo and say that it's only good for the technology economy. It's not, I mean, the fact that one segment of the economy is highly productive actually ends up benefiting other segments as well, if for no other reason, but it creates demand and it creates the capacity to buy. It creates wealth. A really important implication of Say's law is the idea that the importation of goods is beneficial to the economy, even at a trade deficit. Uh, if you, if you 
really come at things from a demand side, and if you come at things from a Keynesian or a mercantilist side, then you would have the sort of view about trade that Donald Trump has, which is that someone's winning and someone's losing, right? And so if you have a trade surplus, you're the winner, and if you have a trade deficit, somehow that's a bad thing. And a Say's law with the understanding that you know, because if you look at like trade deficits, well, we may have trade deficits in some industries, but we have trade surpluses in other industries, right? And so this idea that production in one industry can be beneficial even to people in other industries is directly related to this issue of trade. And the final implication of Say's law, I think, is that encouraging com- consumption is not beneficial and can even be harmful. Production and accumulation is what leads to prosperity. Consumption without production really eats away at prosperity. And that's actually how Say closed his book, is by making that argument. So let's talk about now from a, from a government policy standpoint, like what are the implications of this? And I think the obvious one is that our policy should encourage production not necessarily consumption. Consumption sort of takes care of itself. Demand kind of takes care of itself. So we should be looking at tax policies that encourage production. We should be looking at regulatory policies that don't hurt production. We should be looking at policies that encourage innovation, which is sort of the ultimate example of production creating its own demand. And there's also, I think, an implication here for intellectual property protection, which is an issue that we work on here at IPI. Uh, If you want innovation, if you want production, you have to give people some reasonable expectation that they will be able to own and profit from a successful innovation and from a successful invention. And so good, strong intellectual property protection is one of the policy implications of making sure that we are encouraging production. And so, Tom, the 2017 tax law that passed in December 2017, uh, tax reform, was probably, I would say, one of the last major, let's say, supply-side or SAIS-friendly kind of Mm -hmm. legislation that's passed. Because for the most part, for the past, we have to include George W. Bush in this, I think, for the most part, Washington has been run by people is if we give people more money, if we hand out money to them, they will consume and that will grow the economy. And we just have not seen that. And we're talking, we're doing this at a time when Congress is looking at handing out huge amounts of money to people under the auspice, under the sort of the misguided thinking that if we hand that money out, they will use that money, consume, and that that will spur the economy. And I would argue it might do just the opposite. Yeah, that, that is a Keynesian approach. This idea that whether, whether you're sending people direct checks whether you're giving them tax credits or whether you, you mentioned, you know, president George W. Bush, you know, famously, uh, you know, there were a couple of $300 and $600 checks mailed to households. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea was if we put money in people's pockets, they'll go out and spend, and that will stimulate economic growth. And then the, the Bush administration was left looking back saying, why didn't it happen? It, it didn't work. The economy, they, those, those tax policy changes did not result in economic growth increasing. And I think what we've tried to do on this podcast is explain why that might have been. And of course, is that Donald, they were emphasizing consumption rather than production. Of course, Donald Trump did the same thing by handing out checks, as did Joe Biden, which at least at least in the first aspect in 2020 of doing that, you had an economy that was shutting down. It you know, you sort of thought, well, we're making up for people who are losing their jobs. Yeah. 
And so we're providing a little bit of money. But it turns out it spurred saving and investment yeah. in a lot of ways because people didn't need it. So they stuck to the banks where they invested. And that's that's got Wall Street, that's got Democrats upset because that's helping. They're going to say that helps out Wall Street and all this spending that's going on in uh, investing in stocks. It's just amazing. I think it's interesting that you brought up the COVID relief because I don't think COVID relief is a good example of what we're talking about because it was COVID relief. Right. It wasn't technically it wasn't to stimulate economic growth. Right. Typically, and, and, it, it, technically it was to give households relief, but politicians couldn't help but slip into that economic growth language. They, 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 they would immediately start talking about, and this will help jumpstart the economy or this will help the economy grow. And it, you know, I was like tearing my hair out because I was like, no, you've shut down the economy. You have, sh- you have literally locked down the economy. The reason the economy is not growing is because you have shut down businesses. You've told people they can't go to work. Uh, you've told businesses they can't open, they can't be open. So, you know, the idea of trying to stimulate economic growth while also locking down the economy is like pushing down on the gas pedal and the brake pedal at the same time. You know, you're not going to go anywhere. So I found it fascinating during all of those COVID relief discussions that they couldn't help but slip into the language of economic growth and economic stimulus, even though that was not the point of those payments. A better example, I think, is the George W. Bush example, where the overt reason for you know payments to household was to stimulate the economy, and it just didn't work. And the reason it didn't work was that it was a Keynesian approach, even though the people who designed it didn't even, probably didn't even know that. But it was a Keynesian approach, not a supply side approach. And the, and you were talking, of course, about when you hand out money. But even when they were looking at expanding Medicaid, which they were able to do under the Affordable Care Act, mm. there were studies that came out saying we're going to expand Medicaid. That's the federal state health insurance program for the poor. They will now have they'll now be able to go out and go to the doctors, go to the hospitals, go to get prescription drugs and so forth. And that's money that's coming out and going to. Uh, in the local economy, to the healthcare providers and other things, and that's going to stimulate the economy. So it wasn't that we're giving money directly to people; it's just we're providing this healthcare money for people if they go out and spend it in the in buying healthcare. That's going to grow the economy. Interestingly, in the studies that did that, if you went back and looked and said, "Well, what, aren't we taking money away to do this? <laughs> aren't we taking money right. from somebody it's coming from to somewhere, give it them right. to hand it out?" And and one of the classic studies from Families USA had a footnote way in the back and said, we didn't actually include the notion of how much this might decrease the economy from the money we're taking away from people. We're just focusing on how much money we're giving people. Actually, Tom, that raises a or, or segues into a point I wanted to point out. And I know you didn't do an exhaustive list of the policy implications mm-hmm. here, but just to look at the four you pulled, which was tax policy, regulation, innovation, and intellectual property protection. As I think about legislators, and I'm thinking federal Congress, U.S. Congress here, tax policy, I'll call it 50-50 as far as some want more taxes, some argue for less. And I'm Mm. not saying they do it for the right reasons, but I'll call that one 50-50. Sure. Intellectual property protection, generally I think thought of as a good thing. And generally, there are certainly a lot of sub-debates where we could argue about the approach of thing, but generally I think uh, Congress gets it. So we'll... So it's about a 50%, 100%. But then when I look at regulation and innovation, and I think some of the examples just in the tech world, but even more broadly, regulation is on a tear. This mm-hmm. is not just from some of the traditional pro-regulatory yeah. folks. This is from across the board, both sides of the aisle. And that has a very direct, all these things have a very direct in effect then on innovation. But even worse, 
people are all but attacking innovation these yeah. days. Um, if, if you're on Capitol Hill, they shake their fingers at the, the, the companies that have been super successful because of their innovations, because they have provided a supply of something that has been so hungrily demanded later in the marketplace. So mm -hmm. I, I'm going to give both those zeros. So when I look at your four scores here, I think I got a kid that comes home with an A, kid that comes home with a maybe a C minus, and a kid that comes home with two F. <laughs> I'm not sure I score Congress very highly here when it comes to understanding says law. Yeah, and and so to to put a fine point on it, more regulation discourages production. Absolutely. And not properly valuing innovation, and in fact attacking innovation also discourages production. That's right. And that's the opposite of what we should be doing from a policy standpoint. We should be encouraging production. And, you know, as sort of a final sort of coda on this episode of the IPI Policy Basics podcast, I just want to say anytime you hear any politician saying we need to put more money in people's pockets in order to grow the economy, you know that they don't understand this fundamental issue that it's supply we should be talking about, it's production we should be talking about, Consumption and demand take care of themselves when you are encouraging an abundant supply of production in an economy. So that's the importance of Say's law. That's the importance of the idea that you have to produce first before you can consume. And if you want to understand economic standpoint, economic policy from a sort of classical economic standpoint, that's a very fundamental concept. Well, you can find a lot more about fundamental economic concepts and economic policy in general at our website at ipi.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. <laughs>